0: And welcome to part two of Steve Rowland, The Man of the Dog. And <laughs> today we're also introducing Maylin Dog. Could you hold up Maylin a little bit so we can see? It's full doggage. It's doggage. I'm going to put her down, Richard, because it's not fair for her. Well, I wouldn't put her down. I think she's great. She is great. So thank you, Steve. Thank you, Maylin. Thank you, Maylin. So, Steve, we still haven't finished with LA yet, and I just want to ask a couple of questions. So there are two films that I'd like you to just tell us a little bit about, Crime in the Streets. That's a really interesting film, interesting director, and interesting co-stars. Tell us a little bit about how you got involved in that. I was with an agency, Paul Small Agency, and I was not sent out
1: to audition for this film. But a friend of mine was, and we both went together to Sam Goldwyn Studios. And uh, there was a few people there waiting to go in to be interviewed. And then my friend went in and he came out right away. And when he came out, the person that opened the door for him looked and saw me sitting there and said, are you here for the interview? And I said, no, I just came along with my friend. And uh, she said, "Uh, would you come in please? Because we'd like to interview you. So I went in and I got the part. Pretty incredible team of people you were working with. John Cassavetes, Sal Mineo, Mark Rydell, who became a film director, and uh, it got great reviews. They bring it back all the time. It was done on the stage at uh, Sam Goldman Studios. I don't know, it was one of my favorite films. What was Cassavetes actually like as a guy to work with? Well, John Cassavetes was a great guy, a very intellectual guy, and very easy to talk to. And of course, then when I moved to London, he was there, and I had some time with him. He was a really a a a terrific guy and a a very studious person. He studied acting, he studied writing, he studied all that. Hmm. And uh,
0: I think it showed in his films. Absolutely. Uh, Were there any kind of conceptual things that were specific to him about the way that he made the film?
1: Not particularly. He had a very good director, Don Siegel. Uh Don Siegel was a top director in those days. And uh, he and Don Siegel, uh, they got all fantastically well. I, I wasn't privileged enough to know what they were speaking about, but uh, I'm sure that John
0: Chasavetes put his two cents in. You would have been about 20 at this time? Just turned 20. Right, right. And, and what about Sal Minio? I mean, uh, obviously a lot has been written about him, but what was he like as a guy to, to work with as an actor? Sal was a very good actor and a very nice guy. He was nothing like the character.
1: And nothing like the character in uh, Rebel Without a Cause. He's very upfront, tough guy. And, um, you know, his his looks
0: defied what he was like, you know. Right, because he always played a kind of a weak kind of character. He was was anything but that.
1: Uh, Being an actor is not easy. Everybody thinks it's easy. Everybody thinks, oh, you guys, you know. It's not. It's a lot of work, especially mental work if you're going to be a good actor, if you're going to listen, because acting is listening and
0: reacting, not acting. Sure. So uh, they were great at that. Well, after that experience, you then did this film, Gun Glory, which you've told me you had some interesting experiences on. My father directed that film, and he auditioned
1: everybody but me. And I had a friend at the time by the name of John Ashley. John Ashley was a very wealthy kid that came from Oklahoma oil. And uh, he was a producer on many of the Filipino films that were made. Everybody had failed on the audition. So I asked my father, I said, "Uh, Dad, uh, listen, let let me audition. I'll I'll do a, a, a screen test with whoever. And uh, we'll see. So uh, I did a screen test, and the vote was with the producer, and uh, with him that I got the part. I right. thought I was absolutely terrible at it. I think it was the worst job I've ever done. But the one thing that I could do that a lot of these people couldn't do, that was to ride horses, do all kinds of things on horses, and it was athletic. Right, and they needed that for this character so I got the part oh I wish I could do it over again Yeah, but it was interesting because I worked with Stuart Granger and I say this I don't like to say terrible things about anybody but I've worked in over 40 television shows and had a series had, did 9 films never had a problem with anybody got along with everybody the one person that was a complete asshole Stuart Granger. He didn't like the idea. I mean, I was 20 years old, 20, 21 years old at the time. He didn't like the idea of when you came out of the gate at MGM Studios of all the teenage girls rushing to get an autograph. And I said to him when he, he, he yelled at me on the set, I said, Mr. Granger, I said, I'm a young kid. These girls are young kids first thing they're going to do is they're going to come after whoever the young person is in the film i said i've done so many fan magazine interviews and everything they knew who i was oh he didn't like it he didn't like the fact that i played rock and roll music in my dressing room he didn't like any of that and uh finally the very end of the day we were up in garberville california which is up near eureka We were late getting on the plane and they were waiting for for us to get on the plane, just he and I. And uh, when we got on the plane, he said, Steve held it up. I said, no, I didn't. We both held it up because you were absolutely tearing into me about every wrong thing you thought I did on the film. Possibly some of it was right, if you want to know the truth. But he was that kind of a guy. And I am not the only person that says that about him. He was a good actor, good-looking guy, was really athletic.
0: But, but isn't as a person... Would you say, I mean, after all, he was older. He what, what was he at the time? Probably about 50?
1: I'm not sure, but he was in his mid to late 40s. But sounds- I didn't like the way he
0: treated his wife. Yeah, but uh, I mean, it's, he sounds like the kind of guy who was just jealous of everybody and lamenting his lost youth and, and uh, he sees this young good-looking guy, uh, <laughs> certainly with muscles and uh, he thinks, well you know why is he getting all the attention? Well, he was an
1: arrogant guy, very very arrogant and very much a narcissist right And uh, when you deal with people like that, uh, I wish I knew then what I knew know na- now about how to deal with people like that, but none of us ever do when we're young. No, Jane Simmons was his wife wife. she was gorgeous and a lovely lady lovely and he treated her man you know I would never do things like that you have to respect women and he you know come here do this well that's all I'm going to say about it
0: but he did a very good job well let's talk a little bit about your female co-star oh you're (laughs) talking you're talking about Rhonda Fleming that's who I'm talking about
1: Boy, was she a lovely person, Rhonda Fleming. I saw her when I moved to Palm Springs, I saw her down here and she was in her 80s and she looked almost as good as she did when we made the film. She was very easy to work with and really, really a nice person and helped me a lot. Instead of being
0: critical, she was uh, she motivated me. She was a lovely person. And, and, and how did you handle the love scenes? <laughs>
1: Well, there was only one, Richard, unfortunately, only one,
0: yeah. and I
1: handled it. Let's put it that way.
0: No, but I, I mean, I mean did, did you talk about what you were going to do beforehand? Obviously, you you probably rehearsed it. And and uh, after all, it's the young guy who's, who's in love with the older, hot woman. How, you know, how was, how did you discuss it with well, her? Well, you know, you know,
1: the story was a father Lee leaves when I'm very young, which is Stuart Granger. And my mother dies and I'm very lonely and I'm there taking care of the ranch at 16 years old. And uh, into the, into our lives comes this woman who takes up with Stuart Granger. And she's so nice to me. This is in the film. And I get smitten, get a, you know, get a crush. And we're talking in a scene about a couple of things, and I just reach over and kiss her. And then I'm upset about it and embarrassed about it.
0: That was the extent. Yeah, I thought I I must say I thought you you did that brilliantly, and uh, I thought that was the best scene in the film because you you could see that you it was impulsive, and then you were embarrassed by it. The embarrassed part is harder to act, you know. And I think you did that really well without complimenting you too much, which I can't do. Please don't. (laughs) You know me, Richard. I don't talk very much about me. So so let's move on now. How did you get the gig to do Battle of the Bulge? Oh, well, I was living in
1: Spain. I went to Spain in May of of 63. Okay, tell me why you went to Spain. I just got fed up uh, with a lot of the bullshit here in Hollywood. And uh, it, it was getting more and more difficult to get roles. The kind of roles that I wanted. And I'd had that series. Well, it wasn't my series. It was Hugh O'Brien's series, but I had a running part in The Legend of Wyatt Earp. And you know how things change. People start looking for different things and different types of stories and stuff. And I wasn't getting the parts that I wanted. And I thought, well, I'm going over to Spain because they were making all kinds of films over there. And I was bound to get into something. So I went over there, and the very first film that I got into, funnily enough, was Gunfighters of Casa Grande, Mm. which was a Spanish cowboy film, Mm -hmm. and uh, I had a leading part in that, and from that, uh, the uh, director, and I think it was the director, producer, saw me. So I saw my uh, saw some rushes, which are what they show you after rushes are when, for those that don't know, rushes are when, at the end of the day, they go into a screening room and they show bits of what was taken that day, and evidently somebody saw it and they called me in for a part in uh, a Thin Red Line with Tier DeLay, Jack Warden, which I got, mm. and it was a good part. And then when Warner Brothers brought uh, Battle of the Bulge over, they were looking for American actors. And everybody had to audition. I auditioned and I got the part. And uh, it turned out pretty well. It was the first time that I played a part where it was sort of comedy. I was sort of the comedy person because yes. I was playing a naive young person saying
0: stupid things. Yeah. Which kind of hang with me, you <laughs> know. I say stupid names all the time. You were the sidekick to Telly, Telly Simonson, Simonson. Simonson. Uh, who yeah. was supposed to be the tough, older guy. And and you were kind of a, hey, hey you guys, kind of guy. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And and
1: he was always annoyed with me. Always annoyed. I mean, in the film. Yeah. So everything, you know, there was the one scene where we come to a stop in the tank. I was a, t- a tank driver. We come to a stop. And I, everybody gets out of the tank and I jump out of the tank last night. I went, oh boy, are we going to see some Germans? You know, and he <laughs> looks at me and it was just one of those kind of parts. Telly was great. He's a real good networker. He would go around to everybody, you know, and tell his stories. And he was a funny guy. And, uh, oh, I got along great with him. You know, I'm not not a, the person I really got along with in that film was Charlie Bronson. Yeah. He and I got to be very friendly, and uh, he came over to London when I was there and visited me. He was at oh, all. Can I just interject something very funny? Oh sure, yeah. I was staying with a, a guy by the name of Jericho Brown, who I knew in Hollywood. A great big six foot six singer, very good singer, and he was trying to be an actor. And we were living in this one room, one room with a kitchen off to the side apartment. Off of uh, Sloan Avenue in Chelsea, and Charlie came to visit me. And when he came, came upstairs to the to the room, and he um, sat out on the chair. And we were all talking, and Jericho was there. and Jericho, trying to get in with him, said, "Hey, Chuck." <laughs> and this is how he said, "Hey, Chuck. You know I know lots of birds around here. How about if we all and." and <laughs> Robinson said, Hey, you, whatever your name is, don't call me Chuck. And I don't need you to fix me up with a girl. Anyway, I'm married, so fuck off. (laughs) I'll never forget that guy. The six foot six guy kind of shrunk into himself.
0: There's a story about that too, which I'll tell you later. (laughs) But, you know. um, Well, this is an interview, so you could tell the story now if it's funny. After I left, Spain, and we moved to, to London. I moved there because
1: I wanted to get into the record business. Everybody was talking about, you know, band you know, groups being formed and people making hit records. And I thought, hey, I can do that. Because I I'd sung with a group in Spain called Los Flaps, and we had a couple of chart records. And I thought, well, if I can do it in Spain, I can do it in London. So I came to London came in, didn't didn't do anything particular. And one day the doorbell rings and it's the home office at the door. And they said to me, Steve Rowland? I said, yes. They said, "Uh, your passport is overdue. (laughs) You're going to have to leave the country and you're going to have to leave it within 48 hours. So I left the country, had to leave, went back to Barcelona where I was staying with my father and It was luck. I was lucky because I had gone out with the girl that's in London that uh, had connections. I didn't know this, but she was a nice girl. She and I got along very well. And uh, I called her when I was in. I said, They've deported me from London. I want to come back, blah, 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 blah. Because I had met Jack Bavistock, who was the head of Fontana Records, and he was very interested in. Signing me as a recording artist. Great. Here I am back in Barcelona. So she went and talked to him and probably some of her connections. And they brought me in on a work permit. Jack Barberstock said, we are going to use Steve Rowland as a record producer because he's American. And anything that he produces, we can release easily in the States. That was a boy. That was the home the office went for, they went for it, but they said, we are going to check in the next six months. And if he hasn't made any records, he's going right back to Barcelona. Well, the very first record I made was Hold Tight with A.D. Dozy Beaky, Make a Titch, it was a silver record. It uh, sold 250,000 copies, so you, I
0: was So You continued to make 12 more top five records with them.
1: Well, that's true, but I have to give a lot of credit to Howard and Blakely, who were the writers and the managers of the group, because they wrote great songs. Yes. And they were all, uh, my my way of producing was like directing a film, first act, second act, third act, and I did everything, as you know, because we worked together, as a film. So all the record, the songs that they wrote were uh, storyline, plots, you know. Uh, Legend of Xanadu number one um, Last Night in Soho all these were stories Yes. so they worked for a while and then then Dave D decided that he didn't want to do those kind of records anymore that they wanted to do their kind of records and so we broke up
0: yeah but I mean let's face it they were writing those story songs weren't they they were but Dave D
1: and the band didn't like it after a while they wanted to do their stuff they wanted to be cred yeah and uh you can't be cred unless you are cred yeah.
0: and have had another hit
1: uh, yeah that well they never did anyway that's But
0: i'm glad you've told people how you conceptualize your productions but uh, i remember when we did starship trooper you actually had a storyboard made of the yeah, entire thing which which of course they used some of that for the video and uh which of course was in its infancy in those days but you've always thought visually and you've always uh ha- had the idea from the very beginning as you can see from hold tight and xanadu uh of using sound effects uh as your as one of your production sort of uh, well it was just coming in then richard if you remember they were just
1: starting to uh, use the atari and, and bring in sound effects and things like that and we don't you remember we made up our own remember though right. you know and we talked about it because you coming from Hollywood like I did. You knew what I was talking about. You were one of the only ones.
0: Yeah. And well, we used
1: to talk about it. Well, I mean, uh, I, I love
0: that idea because then you, you had a clear direction, which was excitement, events. You know, the whole thing was to produce events on the on the record. Well, that that's it. And, and certainly, Legend of Xanadu, The Whip, that, I had to make that.
1: Today, you just use a plug-in,
0: you know. Yeah, I know, I felt the end of that,
1: uh, but... <laughs> <laughs> Richard, come on, tell you got to tell that story when when you were, uh, when I brought you over to uh, Hansa and Peter Peter was looking for a a country singer to sing this song. I forget the name of the song. (laughs) Tell a story because
0: you tell it so (laughs) well. (laughs) <laughs> yeah the the head of Hansa Records was Peter Meisel, Peter Meisel who was a German guy very very nice guy but very uh opinionated let's say and he he had this country song that that I, who found the song did he find the song he found it yeah i, I think i think it was something that he, uh Paul Simon had written or something like that I, I don't remember what the song was, but he wanted—he was trying to find somebody to to sing it, and they auditioned a lot of people. And I said, "Wait, wait a minute, Steve would be the perfect guy to do this." And I believe, Steve, you told me, "No, no, no, you can't do that. He'll never accept that. He'll never." Yeah. And so I said, "Okay, okay, let's do it anyway." But let's have you sing it. But we'll call we'll call you a different name. Now I don't remember the name we chose. I don't either. But it was very funny. It was something like, you know, Hutch Chuckinson or something like that. It was some some weird name we'd picked. Some very country sounding name. And uh, so we recorded it. We went in the studio and did the did the uh, recording. And I took it back to Peter Meisel, and uh, he said, yes, this is, this is what we want. This is it. This is it. <laughs> and, and I said, that's great. That's great. And he says, you must find this singer. He's, he's brilliant. He's uh-huh. wonderful. And, and I said, OK. <laughs> now, was it you who told him or me who told him? I told him much later on because yeah. you went
1: back and you said, the singer is not here. He's left town or something like that. Yeah, I was trying right. to get
0: away with it. And well, he, I said, Richard, I can't say it's me. Who, you know, I'm not supposed to be singing stuff for him. Yes, and we should explain to the audience also that Steve was working as A&R. That was his job. He was A&R and a, a house producer. So in pre- Peter Meisel's opinion, he could not be allowed to be an artist and a singer. Uh, uh, and and the funny thing was that we finally had to tell him because he was going to release the record. And, uh, and I said, well, actually, I, Peter... It was actually Steve who sung that. He said, what, what? Yeah. And then he had to cover himself. So he says, oh, of course, I knew. I was just joking. I Of course, we can't release it. And and uh, I didn't really like it very much. But but uh, I, I was just joking. I was playing along. I knew it was Steve all along. Well, of course, of course he didn't. But we're we're getting ahead of ourselves in a way because I want to get back to your production career. So we've done Dave D, Dozy, Beaky, Mick, and Titch. But then after that, you then did some other things. For instance, there was a a group called The Herd, who you discovered. Yeah, The Herd I did before Dave D. The Herd was the first group
1: that I did. They had Gary Taylor was singing, and so was, oh, what's his name, the keyboard player? They were doing very kind of cutesy type, you know, alternative songs. And I put them with uh, Howard and Blakely. And Howard and Blakely wrote some songs. And the very first one they wrote, which was a big hit, was called From the Underworld. Right. Morpheus Descending, you know, the same story. And that was a big hit. And we used an orchestra. And it was very funny with that group. In those days, it's, I don't know whether it's like this today, but then you had to be cred, man. You weren't cred. You couldn't talk to anybody. The papers would put you down and all that. Oh, he's nothing but pop. So they wanted to be cred and they didn't like again, they didn't like those stories. They didn't like those, those, those kind of records. So the second record we did was a striptease type number, and that was a hit. Right. And and then we did the big hit, which was I Don't Want Our Loving to Die, which I got Peter Frampton to sing. And there was a fight to get him to sing that. And, and he was uh, he was already the guitarist in the group, wasn't he? He was the guitarist in the group, but he didn't want to sing. Yeah, but and he was, was 15 years old at the time, and he was a terrific guitarist. Yeah. terrific, as is proven, he's still going. Yeah, and uh, you know, like all groups, even my own group, after a while they start thinking they want to do it their way. Yes, and uh, he met up with um, oh the small faces, right. and he went out, He went on to join. Oh, what was the guy's name that killed himself, burned himself to death? Uh, he well, they made Frampton's Camel, and he right. joined that. Right.
0: And uh, then, then he had his own band. Right. And of course, Frampton Comes Alive was a big hit album. When you told me about it before, you said that you had always seen him as being very talented, but the rest of the group thought, you know, they were the stars and didn't want this young kid to be the star. Is that the sort of way you? Well, would have- yeah. In a way, I mean, whenever you went into mixing, and you know
1: this from your own experiences, every member of the group wanted their instrument up loud. Well, when you're mixing, you can't do that. You know, you can't mix records like that. No, so that's basically what happened with, with the herd.
0: Which is and why that, in later days you refused to allow the artist to come into the studio.
1: That's right, because the only person that would allow to come in the studio was the, the vocalist you know, to make sure I, that you could hear, because there, there was a trend in the uh, 60s to kind of bury the vocal. As you remember, it was always kind of a, you bury the vocal a bit like the rest of the
0: group. Well, I, I remember when I was working with Cat Stevens around well, the late 70s, and one of the things he told me, which I always uh, remembered was, he said, make the vocal so that you have to lean in a little bit to hear it, not exactly. do this, but he said, it's a very delicate balance. So if you make them lean in too much, it's too much hard work. It should be something that they want more of. Always leave them wanting more, just like the, just like the movies, just like vaudeville. Always leave them wanting more. So- Exactly right. Yeah. Exactly, and so, and, exactly right. Yeah. And I would fight
1: with these people in the studio. My, my thing was to play it as loud as you can on the monitors and then put it down through a radio. You know that what i had on the desk sure and if you could hear it is clearly both places yeah and you were doing well
0: now in, well, those, in those days were you working four track eight track what what was started four track right but i will say this
1: richard and i got a very good compliment from the people at billboard for this when i made that album coming from reality with rodriguez I made sure that you could hear every syllable of him because the most important thing was his songs and him, not the backing. And they mentioned that. There's this guy that that came to the premieres and everything. He cornered me and he said, I love the way you produced that album because I could hear everything that Rodriguez was singing and what he was talking about. And it was as though he was in the room with me. I said, well, I tried really, really hard to get that effect for the artist's sake. What is he selling? He's selling his work. Mm. You know, his his writing. Yes. And the backing may be
0: good, but the backing is secondary to the song and to the artist. Indeed. Indeed. Now, in those days, in the 60s, you had a pretty illustrious set of session musicians working with you. All the
1: guys from the big bands. I I made an album called uh, the London Sessions album with Jerry Lee Lewis and the idea was to use all the name
0: artists from the other band. For your normal session work though you had guys who later formed a fairly big group uh, which was uh, called Led Zeppelin. That's one of the reasons why your tracks always sounded great because you had incredible guys doing it. And I used to tell them what I was just saying to you about the taste. I made sure that the drums
1: were, were tuned to the key of G. I made sure that everything was in tune. A lot of guys, you know, they don't really get things in tune. And it made the record sound better. If you do a record and something in there is out of tune, man, you hear it. Because they always did
0: great things. They spent as much time as they needed to, as I needed them to. So now, after all of these uh, wonderful experiences producing other people, I want you to tell me about that's where we started with May Lin in this thing. You hear about dog. the family dog. <laughs> well, the family dog was,
1: was something I'd always wanted to do because I loved fifth dimension and uh, I loved all those groups. And, and I love mamas and papas. And I thought, well, what? There's none in England. Let's see if we can put one together. So I I was very friendly with Albert Hammond, Mike Hazelwood, God rest his soul. And the idea was to have three of us and a couple of girls. Way of Life, of course, was a big hit, number two. We did pretty well. Well, with the group alone, we cut 24 tracks. And when I took it on solo, and still called Steve Rowland and the Family Dog, all in all, we cut 42 tracks. Right. And they've released them now, um,
0: Cherry Red Records. Yeah, but my favorite track of all the ones that you did, of course, is Sympathy, which you did a fantastic vocal on. And again, I think you sung that song very much as as an actor. Who wrote that song, Sympathy?
1: Sympathy was written by a group called Rare Bird. They did a great record of it, really a great record. They were just ordinary looking guys. And in our group, we had these glamorous girls and all that. And I think that's probably why.
0: Yeah, the glamorous girls, by the way, were always changing, weren't they?
1: I'll tell you why they were changing. They were changing because either fathers or brothers or sisters or boyfriends used to make demands. They wanted them to sing the lead. They wanted them to do this and that. And then they would give you an ultimatum. Either that happens or they're out of the group. So I said, fine, goodbye. And I would get another girl. There was all kinds of very good singers around, as you know, yeah. that uh,
0: are more than happy to do that. A lot of people talk about the 60s in London. A lot of people worship it as being some golden magical period where there was nothing but peace, love and brown rice, uh, plenty of marijuana and and uh, sex. But tell me what it was really like to be living not only living in, in London for during that period of the 60s, but also uh, you, you were a pretty prominent cat in, in those days. You were a successful record producer, successful artist. London was the spot
1: in the universe. That's where all the great music was coming from. Some films were, you know, the James Bond films and all that were coming out of there. It was the place to be. And I had lots of hot and cold running girls. I didn't smoke. I didn't do drugs. Not because I was against it, but because I just particularly didn't like it. I didn't like the feeling of being out of myself, you know? And I had a very bad experience before I went to Europe with penicillin, where I was dead for nine seconds and they went into my heart. And then, well, it's another story. But... It always reminded me that if if you take something that you're not sure of, something can happen. Kind of silly, but that's yeah, why I didn't. No. So I missed out on a lot of those wild parties. <laughs> and the ones that I went to, when it got too wild, I was out of it because I was considered, no,
0: man, he doesn't know anything. He's not in with us. So, so you, were, you were actually ostracized by people who were smoking dope and taking well, up Well,
1: there was a couple of reasons. Number one, I was making pop records, which was considered nothing. Number two, I was American. And uh, there was kind of a tension about being American and being British. And number three, I wasn't credible, if you know what I mean. They wanted cred. So that's why. But as you know, Richard, We had a lot of fun. We did a lot of things, and there was lots of interesting things to do. I got involved in motocross. I got involved in kart racing, uh, which I love doing. And so my and I was in the gym all the time. So and even you know when I got you in the gym, I said, "What are you doing, Richard?"
0: And you used to say. (laughs) I don't want to be tortured. <laughs> yeah. well, that, but that's interesting that it was, a, you were obviously going to be a fish out of water wherever you went. Because I still am. Because you came from a unique background of a, of a film artistic background. You'd already, by the time you hit London, you had already done films, TV shows, you had already been in successful groups, like in in Spain, Los Flaps, which I won't even discuss the name of that group, but we'll we'll go on, and and, uh, and so you'd already done those things. So most people, I think, in the sixties, you know, they were wannabes, or they were already kind of current stars. But but you were the guy in the middle you because you already knew what it was like to be working with top people, top musicians, top actors you already knew that. So you were somewhat different from the ordinary person of the 60s in London. I didn't go to parties,
1: if I could help it. When I got into the dance time, when everybody was making dance records, I had to go to these clubs and stay up until 1.30, 2 o'clock in the morning, and I hated it. You
0: even ran one of the clubs, if I remember. And I did, the Valbon. The Valbon, yes. Yeah, yeah, and put on acts. Well, yeah. talking about yourself on this show, of course, is going to make you a superstar because everybody <laughs> knows that Radio Richard is the way to start Absolutely. for everyone. Radio Richard, you should—you were doing some of this in England. You should have been doing a television. The absolute funniest thing that's ever happened in your career, the funniest story that you have in your career. Oh, Richard,
1: I was ducking that one.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well,
1: I will start by saying... We, in, in Ljubljana, Yugoslavia at the time, we did a, uh, a concert and the concert included the group Family Dog, which is my group. It included the marmalade and we went to a stadium and um, we, there was about 10,000 people or so there. And we did, the, the, the concert was very, very successful. And so we were very happy at the end of it, and we went back to the hotel. Now, let me explain the hotel. The hotel was built like a hexagon, and they had windows. I think it had about six or eight floors, and it went, all the sides had windows from the floor to the ceiling, great big windows, and they had a balcony. Each, each room had a balcony. So we were uh, residents in that hotel. Now, Mind you, this was back in 19... 19- when was this? Seventy something, seventy three or four, some time like that. We went there. We were getting drunk in the in the uh, mezzanine, which was on the second floor. And by drunk, I drink one drink and I'm out of it. I noticed everybody that. else was everybody else was drink, drinking, and We were pretty pissed. Yeah. And the the uh, road manager, who I will leave nameless, got very pissed, and he left. Us and went upstairs and he went out on the balcony and we're sitting in the bar area and he put his ass over the edge of the balcony and took a shit and the shit went (laughs) against the window in the bar and then slid down like that (laughs) then he went out in the hallway later on took another shit and put a cocktail flag in it So, yeah, it was funny at the time, it's embarrassing, even me telling it, because I laughed like a dream, man. I tell you,
0: I died when I saw that. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I mean, there were some funny things that happened when we were doing Starship Trooper. Okay, we did a record called, called I Lost My Heart to a Starship Trooper with Sarah Brightman, who I brought to Hansa as the savior of the track we had a full string section and a brass section on the on the record and there was one trumpet player who will remain nameless I guess but he was very alcoholic and he actually (laughs) showed up at the studio uh drunk so I'm out there conducting the thing and meanwhile I can't hear it because I'm in the studio conducting down on the floor but the trumpet yeah, but Steve's in the studio and he can hear every single thing, and the trumpet player under his breath said something like, "Steve, you heard it." Well, he was putting Richard down. He was he was saying, uh, "Well, this weasel writing this shit, it's crap," something like that. Yeah, yeah, something like and that. So I told Richard. <laughs> well, not only <laughs> that though, Steve Steve put his finger on the talkback so that everybody could hear it, and. And I, let, I let the guy have it. I said, you don't like it? Fuck off. You know? Because you had already said to him, "If you, you, know, you can't talk to my arranger like that. you know, No, I was really pissed off
1: because uh, uh, no matter who the arranger was, it didn't matter that we were friends, it was a, 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 a thing of respect. You don't say stuff like that.
0: No, and it was unprofessional.
1: It's like these people that do things off camera and uh, they find out
0: that they've got an open mic somewhere. And and the interesting thing is that that's the very same trumpet player I ran into years later when I was doing a session for the BBC. I did the BBC Big Band. He was the lead trumpet player of of the section and he was drunk again. And he was saying stuff, I mean I could hear him then because I was standing very close to the band. And he said, "Ah, there's a load of shit. i know how to do this bloody thing. And who, who do you think you are? Who is this? You know." And I actually threw him out of the session. And he said, "And every all the musicians said, oh, you can't do that. You can't well, do that. You know.' Well, and I like can't watch. Please leave the studio." And I well, got, people don't stand up, Richard. People have to
1: stand up. It's what's wrong is wrong. You yeah. don't do stuff like that.
0: None and the, you're a this story may not be interesting to the public as it certainly was to us, but uh, again, I did a television show years later with a very, very fine uh, saxophone player, brilliant saxophone player, and and I had booked him and my big band, Banzilla, for the entire show. It was the Ruby Wax show, and this guy, for the very first TV program, this is 10 weeks of TV. It's the greatest gig in the world for any musician, and of course, the first the first day they wanted to do a rehearse, record, rehearse, re- you know, so this guy didn't show up for the rehearsal and it was terrible. We had to go through the whole thing, we'd do a line check for all the microphones and and he wasn't there. So finally for the actual show, he walked in five minutes before we were actually due to go on and I could tell that he was stoned in some way And I said, don't ever do that again. You know, and he said, well, it's okay, I'm here now. I said, no, it's not okay. You were booked for the rehearsal. So the the next show, he didn't show up again for the rehearsal. So I immediately got on the phone and called a guy who I had never used before but was very highly recommended to me, a fantastic saxophone player called Snake Davis, who you can also see another interview with on Radio Richard and all the musicians gave him the silent treatment all the musicians gave him the cold shoulder and and other expressions and they they wouldn't talk to him at all so on the on the actual show they used to do a thing where they wanted us to warm up the audience so they'd say do a number and then so i did the show and we were doing a track which i had arranged the original record for breakout and but this was my big band arrangement of it And uh, Snake was sitting there, I believe he was playing tenor sax on this one. But anyway, I whispered to him before, and I said, Snake, when it comes to your solo, because I knew he had a solo in it, I'm going to do this, which means take another solo and take an. well, (laughs) and he said, okay, boss. Well, (laughs) I, I did this about maybe 12, 13 times, it was, you know, we he played a solo for probably five minutes and it was ridiculous. And he just ripped the paint off cars. He was unbelievable. And at the end of the, that thing, not only the audience was applauding, but the guys in the band stood up and were applauding. And from then on, everybody treated him really well. I had a very good uh, encounter with the sax player, Earl
1: Bostic. Remember Errol Bostic? Sure, fantastic. And the very first record I ever made was a thing called Outride, It's an instrumental which I wrote and played drums on. And uh, that did pretty well. And er- I hired Errol Bostic to be the sax player. Great. Man, what a gentleman. What a great player. Came in a suit and tie to the studio. The nicest guy and so talented and such an original sound that he had when he played his tenor and he took tenor and alto I guess he could play baritone as well he was there uh, right on time, did the session, one solo that's all it took well Richard there's so many stories I mean like you know Stan Kenton's band and when I used to go to uh, the Lighthouse remember that? the Lighthouse in Hermosa Beach still there by the way uh, every Sunday they would have a jam session, and all the guys from uh, Stan Kenton Band would come Sue Berry and uh, was, uh Ro- Frank Rossellino, and those guys would all come, Kay Winding, you know, and have jam sessions. And one day, you know, one Sunday, Brando was there, and Brando sat in on Congas. Well, it's in the book, you know, I mean, you know, man, I'll tell you something if you could have recorded that. That would have been a masterpiece. What they did, all those guys took solos. Uh, what was a great guitar player? Uh, Howard Roberts. Howard yeah. Roberts.
0: Howard He's, Roberts.
1: Howard Roberts was in the band. Shelley Mann was on drums. I mean, I'm telling you, that was that was the place to go on Sundays. And, and
0: speaking of the book, notice that I have placed it right here. I so have noticed that. So everybody should, uh, if they want to read some fantastic Hollywood stories uh, of the of the 50s and, and also see lots of photographs, uh, rare photographs of all of those people, stories about James Dean, stories about all these great people. Wrestling, you know. This is the book for you. Get it online. Well, Amazon, you know, Richard, I-, I thank you very much for doing that.
1: And because I'm in the, in the throes of writing this television series, it has been picked up by somebody. I haven't told you that. And a lot of it is based on the book And it should be interesting. If they get this off the ground, it should be interesting because it's about the 50s when the mob ran Hollywood. You know about that. You know about all. And
0: uh, uh, and that's all in the series. Well, Steve, thank you very much for doing this. Uh, I think it's marvelous. This is uh, stories that you can't hear anywhere else. Read (laughs) it, Richard. Subscribe if you can. Otherwise, just say thank you, Steve. Yes. Oh, oh. Yeah. That, that. <laughs> <laughs> All, right. All right. Thank, thank you. you, Rich.
1: Thank, thank you, you, man.